wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed Welcome back. Chris, you figured out somehow, I don't know what sort of crazy stuff you got going on over there, but you figured out how to get the theme song in there as well. Yeah, well I got just trying to keep uh, next level each time, you know. That's why you're here. Me and Kyle would never be able to sort that out. I'm I'm positive. Kyle, we're lucky he got his mic hooked up in time. But here we are. Uh, <laughs> Chris, why don't you uh, tech support? <laughs> yeah, 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 he called me to help him get his mic unmuted. <laughs> so, uh, so Chris, who uh, tell everybody who we are, man. Let's see what's going on. Yeah, so, so I'm Chris Leonard. Um, now I'm actually the director of technical operations. Uh, but for the last ten years, I was congrats on the promotion, by the way. Yeah. For the last ten years, I was uh, director of audio at IMS Technology Services, we're a corporate uh, production house. And um, and then prior to that, I was uh, like a touring monitor engineer for artists like Tears for Fears, Josh Groban, Disturbed, stuff like that, uh, with uh, Maryland Sound. And uh, Michael, take it away. Who 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 are you? Who are you? Uh, I I am Kyle Turnside. I wait. <laughs> I'll I'll be Kyle. Kyle, you can be me. Uh, I uh, we'll go right around. I uh, Kyle Turnside was uh, he's well known as, as, as front of house engineer for acts such as Fall Out Boy. All-time low. He's been spotted behind the console for Melissa Etheridge. He once ran monitors for Carly Rae Jepsen, which is a gig I'm particularly jealous of because I think she's fantastic. Kyle spent uh, a bunch of years on the manufacturing side of the industry as a rep for Midas Consoles and more recently with Bose Professional. Uh, he came dressed for the occasion today. I came dressed for the occasion as well with my Taco Bell shirt on, which is a fantastic – and Jim's got his shirt. So we're all, we're all logoed up today. Um, so that's Kyle Turnside. Uh, Kyle, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, um, <laughs> Chris Musgraves. No, it's it's really cool. Like, um, I'm glad that we get to jump in on these things now because uh, it, it's fun. And uh, my friend Michael down here, I met him uh, a couple years ago at this AES Student Summit at Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri. Sat on a few panels with me. I proceeded to call him Matt for a few days. Um, then I got his name right, and he was like, "Hey, man, it'd be funny if we did this podcast thing." Um, I. You want, to, you want to try it? And I was like, yeah, sure. So Pro Sound Web, uh, we are the Signal to Noise podcast. We're about 90 episodes deep. Uh, we have a Facebook page that's really great. Uh, we have a lot of veteran audio folk and not so veteran uh, folk as well that chime in. We do a lot of uh, programs. Michael also works for a company called Rational Acoustics. I don't know if you've heard of them or not. Um, his his real nickname is Michael SPL Lawrence. If you're familiar, <laughs> uh, I like how we're describing each other. His favorite color is blue. He has a he has a bird that talks. And he and lives, uh, he lives in upstate New York. <laughs> that I feel like we've we divulged into the mundane here. Um, our guest this episode, actually the first guest on the first oh ever episode, it's egotistical that I introduced myself and y'all introduced each other. So well, we didn't have a plan when you started. That's that's your role on this show. You jump in when we don't have a plan. Well, you're introducing yourself. Kyle and I came up with the plan. Here we are. We're very happy to have him. This is, I believe, his fourth time with us on the Signal Noise podcast. 
uh, front of house engineer for the stars. You've seen him with Gwen Stefani. You've seen him with Peter Frampton. You've seen him with Journey. You've seen him with Eddie Van Halen. Uh, just a who's who of legendary musicians, and we're so happy to have him on the show. And as a friend of the show, Mr. Jimmy Akabuski, thank you for being here, sir. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Always oh, cool. It's like the old hangout. That's right. And and when SBL Lawrence introduces me, it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> so so. Oh, go ahead, Chris. I, I, I want to get right into our topic. So, the, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The topic is talking about you know mixing both in the corporate world, the rock and roll world, um, and not and not just mixing, just kind of being an audio person in the audio. I mean, uh, um, corporate and rock and roll, and you know there are similarities, there's differences, there are um, there's both in mixing and busing structure and personalities, all those things. So, uh, you know, Jim has done a lot in both spaces at high levels, everything from A-level tours um, to what I consider A-level, you know, corporate shows, whether it's like major corporations uh, and I should have had these in front of me, but I want to say like Nike and Microsoft and stuff like that. I'm probably getting some of that wrong. Super Bowl. That's right. Small games. And um, so anyway, um, uh, let's start with let's start with bus structure, right? Um, so, and this is, is a couple of things, right? There's auxes, uh, matrixes, uh, subgroups. Um, what are maybe what were some of the differences that you had to do coming maybe from old school rock and roll to when you started doing corporate on how you approach um, grouping things the way you did rock and roll versus corporate? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm super straight ahead when it comes to music, so um, matrices, and I'll I'll usually do a left right main PA matrix and a left right sub uh, matrix, and then uh, stereo or mono matrices for the rest of the speaker fills. In corporate, um, very much use the groups, um, just so I can route different levels of. Uh, or, um, you know, auxes as well for, for recordings and things like that. But I, I will use um, the groups for record feeds more than anything to get, get that balanced right. So I, I can choose differently in the house than what I'm doing to the records. Yeah. So, yeah, for, for me, um, I mean, the busing structure from a group standpoint, groups to matrix is what corporate is all about. In other words, like, you know, all of my lobs, you know, go, you know, I, I typically break it down to four basic subgroups, lobs, handheld, podium, playback. You can pretty much get all, anything in a corporate show into that. Now, some corporate shows will get into many more buses, depending on what you have to do, but there is not a corporate show in this world. You can't dumb it down to that. And then you can treat um, how much of you know, you can com- compress and treat all of those lobs together, all those handhelds together, um, and, and so forth. And or, you know, if you're getting into gain structure where you have, you know, fills, um, you know, yeah, inner speakers on sticks, outer speaker sticks or whatever, you can take those lobs and maybe push them a little further out to the outside speakers and not so much the fills to kind of get some more game before feedback type of tricking. So that's, you know, that, I think that's a big difference between rock and roll where you wouldn't typically take um, a bus like that and sp- mix it differently across the space right right definitely and, and about, well oh, sorry, Jim, go ahead. i was just gonna say like when you have uh <clears throat> you know maybe a streaming feed and and uh that's different from the uh isolation recording feed or the just a main left right or a uh a mono uh master with one side being all crowd response uh there's so many different ways to route things in corporate that uh that uh, requires grouping and separating like that. 
So I think, and, and, you know, oh, I th- go ahead, Kyle. <laughs> Dang, dude, sorry, Michael. Uh, so I, I see a lot of different structures too. And in, in corporate, as an A1 position, you have a lot more leniency on how you set up things as well. Um, I think it, when Chris explained the LAVs, video playback, you know, that you can almost do anything because your client's not really going to be like, hey, you can't use a subgroup on my LAVs. Um, so it, you, you could be a little bit more artistic on how you set up your desk for those situations, I think, as well. Um, and uh, your your client, in a corporate sense, wouldn't get the sound quality you're trying to achieve as much as the artist is getting the quality of the sound chip that they want to achieve because they do it every day. You know, this might be a one-time thing or a, con- a traveling conference. So they, they don't get what we're doing half the time. So it's a lot easier to get away with stuff. I'm thinking about a typical live music. You know, if you're at front of house, basically you're worried about mixing left, right to the PA. Um, so, so you're basically worried about one mix. Now you may do front fills off of that. You may, you know, you may split that off, but, but in the grand scheme of things, you're worried about one mix and in corporate, you are really, you know, you have to pay a lot more attention to splitting things off to different feeds, to different fill rooms, to the stream. This is something that we're seeing a lot of churches now have moved to streaming. And the problem, I see this, I see this two, three times a month now on forums and, and stuff. And we get emails about this stuff and they say, Hey, you know, it sounds great in the room, but when we stream it, the band is 25 dB above the pastor. And so what do we do? And people are trying to put crazy limiting on their master bus. This idea that, no, if you put the band into a group and the vocal and speech into a group, and instead of sending, you know, your main mix to the stream, send those groups to a matrix and send them at different levels Mm-hmm. And then the matrix will drive the stream. And so now you're, you, you are balancing that. And then as you're missing the show, it sort of all works itself out. So I think the sort of mental leap, Chris, that you're talking about is getting out of the traditional, you know, my inputs go to my mains and my mains will go to the PA. Like we need to think about, we have other options besides that. And, and yeah. that may work fine, but maybe sending groups to different matrices at different levels, you know, that gives you a lot more flexibility for these different zones. Yeah, and then when you're, it's processing wise too. If you're, if you have a really challenging room and you need to hack the crap out of your vocal or your lav or podium from an EQ perspective, um, you can do it just on that group as opposed to doing the whole system and destroying your whole system and then your playback sounds like crap. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's well. So gain. I mean, when you start talking about the console setup, gain structure is something that now becomes even more, you know, you can kind of get away with more if you're just mixing to a single destination like a PA. But as soon as you start trying to go to recording and go to stream and go to all these other zones, uh, you're going to start running into issues if your gain structure is not where it needs to be. So, um, I mean, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I was just talking to one of the the people that I mentor through our, through our mentorship program, he's doing a streaming mix and, you know, talking about, you know, put your your room EQ, whatever you're doing for whatever you're mixing on your near fields, whatever that is, PA, if you're going to EQ that, do it on that matrix that's driving that particular rig. Sure. So you're not you're not doing it to your whole mix that's also going other places. You don't want the whole mix to be EQ'd for the room that you're in. You just want the system, right? So, so this idea of I have seven places in my signal chain where I can put an EQ filter and where should it go? thinking about that again you might get away with more of that 
in a traditional rock and roll mix. But as soon as you start sending your mix to eight different destinations, you really need to, to think about this. And hello to Joel Lonke in the chat. Hey, hey Joel. Good to nice, see you. Joel. So, Jim, I'm curious. I've, I've seen other uh, touring engineers do this where they'll send a separate mix to their front fills. In other words, it's like maybe it's like just vocals or, you know, you listen to the stage and compliment it as opposed to just it's your full left, right, just down and level. How's your approach been to that or has it changed through the years? It has changed because it because we used to have, you know, full uh, small club PAs on either side of the stage for side fills (laughs) back then. And the drum fill was a full club PA. And, uh, you know, so there used to be a lot and, you know, a lot of uh, artists would also have their guitar amps facing straight out. And so a lot of times the only thing that was kind of missing down there was the clarity of the vocals. So. Um, you'd have plenty of drums from all the fill speakers, guitars, everything else. You you would hear vocal from the wedges, but it, they were always facing at the artist. So you would uh, maybe flown side fills, you would hear the vocals and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I did a little bit more of that back then. But I honestly, um, I almost always send my full mix down to the to the front fills. And then I'll just uh, high pass it enough to keep acoustic guitars and things like that safe. Um on stage, but uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't uh, bust that out in quite a while actually. So, I mean, I want to talk about gear a little bit, and I mean, I would assume this is a safe statement, and Jim, we'll see if you agree with me or not. In your in your experience, I have more leeway about if I get I'm going out to do a rock and roll show. There there may be a point in there where I get to say, yeah, I want this console, and you know, I kind of have a little more say in what I'm going to get. Whereas a, a corporate gig, sometimes it's here's what you have, and it's this desk and you know, you better learn how to use this desk and, and know your way around that. So, um, you know, actually, it's funny. I think like last year, Jim, you sent me a picture of you were mixing on literally a little four channel analog Mac EVLZ thing at a corporate gig. And I'm like, I don't think that's anybody's first choice for a console right on the rider. So so, I mean, no. do you find that when you go to do a corporate gig, how often are you given input into what equipment you're being provided? Um. I, I have been lucky, I guess, because I, I usually, you know, as far as the console goes, I, I definitely don't ever uh, spec or accept a substitute within days of the show just because of the muscle memory that you have to have in corporate to, to not get uh, caught on the wrong fader level uh, or fader bank or something when you need to unmute the CEO's mic and you're, you know down on the 14th video playback channel or something. So, <laughs> so I like to be sure I, I have a very hard luck story about the first time I used an M seven CL and on, had only played <clears throat> with it in the shop for uh, half a day and thought yeah, I felt pretty good about things. And then it, some, some rough moments uh, starting off in run throughs and stuff. But uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm lucky that I get to most often choose now speakers. Uh, that's, that's sometimes, you know, this is your first choice, but they're all booked. So can you make do with this? Um, I think that happens more than the console. So Chris, you, you company, you do a lot of supplying equipment for corporate events. Do you have any interaction with, I know you bring in a lot of freelancers to do a one, a two. So I mean, do you have an interaction with them on what kind of gear they would prefer for a certain thing? Or do you just say, here's, here's the show it's going out, come in and run it. I mean, can you talk about that dynamic a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So the way we work, um, typically I would have designed the system. And so everything from speaker placement to 
typically even down to the angles that speakers are going to fly, um, you know, consoles, quantity of mics, comm, all that. And, and so very rarely have I had an engineer come in. Um, and again, the, I think some of the jobs that we're doing versus maybe some of the stuff that Jim has done or others are maybe slightly different calibers or levels of shows. Um, so for the most part, we're dictating it. And the nice thing I think about the corporate space is that a lot of the gear is the same across most corporate companies. In other words, like 90% of your uh, corporate companies are going to have Yamaha consoles, right? The uh, cases are way better too. <laughs> All the casters <laughs> tend to work. So, you know, I, I feel like um, while you, you have to be experienced as a corporate freelancer on multiple things, you, you get lucky in that I think most you have at least some generation of a Yamaha console, whether it's an LS9, an M7, a CL, or your Ravage, or whatever. Like you're in that ecosystem. Every now and then, you might have some companies that maybe lean towards Allen Heath or Digico, but for the most part, you're in that Yamaha world, and primarily because of Dugan, quite honestly, uh, is the is yep. the main reason. Um, and then also, it behooves itself that like your your sub rental vendors like Nationwide and Rentex and Ver are all stock in the same thing. And so it just kind of works that way. Whereas I feel like rock and roll is a lot more, you know, well, this company has this company has this, this tour wants this. So, um, but back to your original question. Yeah. Typically we design it. And then the engineer, um, I, now I always tell an engineer though on site, like, Hey, at the end of the day, you have to do what's right in that room. So if, if my design was wrong or something was off, don't follow my letter of the law. You know, uh, I trust them to, you know, I'm hiring people that I trust to make a decision to, you know, splay something this way, or um, and I'm definitely not telling a person how to set how to set up their console in terms of like bus structure. That's at the end of the day, that's that's their workflow. But in terms of the physical tools, I've typically picked that out for them. Cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm also I'm kind of interested in, you know, based on the the corporate work that I have done, it seems like a major difference to me versus a, a music event is how quickly you have to be able to adapt to sometimes pretty big changes you're dealing, uh, you know, in my experience has been like, I'm not always being brought up to speed that so-and-so is going to bring out this other person. They're going to talk or, Oh, we just decided we want to show a YouTube video. And so you have to have a quick way to spin up another output zone. You have to have an extra wireless mic. Ready. I mean, just because you, you know, going out with the rock band, it's like, here's the set list. They're going to come out and they're going to do these songs. And you have a pretty good idea of what that show is going to be generally. And, and in corporate, I've learned there's, you know, nothing is safe. You never, you have no idea what's going to happen next. And so you have to be able to really quickly, I, I think, I think it's also like flexibility from a, uh, from an attitude perspective, a professionalism perspective, but also literally being familiar enough with your, uh, tool set, the console, DSP, whatever you're working with to get those changes made in a timely. I don't want the whole event waiting on me. I don't want to be that person. Right. Um, Jim, do you, I mean, can you talk about your experiences with that? Yeah. And, and I think it's like anything you, um, you know, you become more prepared as you uh, recall the times things were thrown at you. Um, I don't know. Like you said, I don't know how many times someone's come up and said, Hey, can you just send a feed of, of you know all of this uh, like a mix minus or just um just the uh the lavalier mics can you just send that mix quickly over here and um <clears throat> so being able to just go oh well i'll just take my lav group assign it to this output and have my a2 pick that up at the stage box things like that but uh the more that i did corporates the more 
I just learned to be prepared by having extra, like you said, extra mics, extra mixes, things kind of pre-dialed. Like I'll have all my uh, mixes, like on a, on a CL5 or something, you got 24 uh, mono mixes and I'll, I'll be like, yeah, you know, 17 through 24 end up being just utility ready to go. A couple stereo mixes, a couple mono mixes or whatever. And, um, and same with, yeah, microphones, things like that. You know, you, you never want, well, the client asked for eight and they don't want to pay for more, more than eight. So you always have 10, you know, or 12 so that you're, you're ready. Yeah. One of the, one of the ways I combat that or prepare for that, um, was I have a stock start file for myself that I, I, I don't max out the console, but I max out just about. So it's like, you know, anywhere from uh, 12 to 15 RF inputs, four podium inputs, you know, a, a panel of eight push to talk mic inputs, you know, uh, four sets of a stereo playback. So like QLab and playback pro, I have all of these spigots already done, already routed to their groups. Um, and the groups are multiple groups. So I have mixed minus groups ready to go in case there's remote presenters or in case there's phone conference lines, all those things. So even if I don't need them on every show, all the, as soon as someone says, Hey, I need, I need to add a phone line to do this. I actually already have the routing done. It's just a matter of just spinning it up. Um, and so that's how you, and that comes from a time of learning. Um, I wanted to jump to, uh, or not jump, go back to a question. Um, yeah. Michael, Michael asked, um, do I ever trust a freelancer to design, um, why or why not? The, it's not, not, it's not a trust thing. It's typically because the design has probably been done months before I picked the freelancer. So, you know, the way I, I work or we work at IMS, if you're a production manager and a sales rep designing, selling a show, i typically have done a majority of the engineering pre-sale. And so at that point, I, you know, I'm handing something that's already been done months ago. Um, every now and then, if I know I've engaged with a certain freelancer from like a, a year round project, like every year, you know, uh, annually, I might engage them and have them kind of do their own thing. But th- so it's not a matter of trust. It's just more a matter of timing on that one. Chris, I want to highlight what you said though, you know, when you mentioned that the first time, which is, you know, at the end of the day, I'm hiring people I trust to think on their feet and, and do what needs to be done. Because like you said, you're not in the room and I'm thinking about a corporate event that I did where it was supposed to be outside and, um, they, you know, they sent, they were fly the PA and all that stuff. And then when I show up, they've put a very low tent over the seating area. And the edge of that tent was like five and a half feet off the ground. So I said, well, if you fly PA, no one's going to hear this show. And so we have to ground stack. And I know what the intent of the design was, but no one knew that that was going to happen. And so you have to, you know, you often have to just make that call. So I think that's sort of what you're talking about, which is, um, Use some sense and judgment in, you know, I understand what the plan is, but obviously that's not a good solution. So we need to kind of adapt that. And so I think that's where you talk about I'm picking people that I trust, where you know that if that situation arises, they're going to handle it. They're not just going to kind of snowplow on through what you told them to do. Sometimes what I told you to do is not the best thing to do, right? I, the other, some of the, the, one of the big things I think about the differences between, you know, uh, differences or similarities is, um, speaker placement mm-hmm. in rock and roll. Uh, it's typically understood that I'm going to have these big black boxes where I want them to be, you know, versus in corporate aesthetic is always going to win over optimal placement and being flexible enough to say, look, my PA is 10 feet behind the podium. Yes. I know that is not acoustically or electrically the best thing to do, but that is what's being sold and you better make it happen. Um, and being able to be flexible in those scenarios, uh, you know, um, or, you know, 
hey, it's not ideal to do speakers on sticks, uh, but this is what it is. It's a it's an eighty by hundred ballroom speakers on sticks. Make it happen. So go ahead, Gom. So so yeah, let's talk about flexibility in the client because I've done a ton of corporate shows too where I went and placed speakers via the plot of the sale and the client would walk through and go, we can't see this stuff. I don't want to see any of this stuff. So obviously thinking forward and you said it's an annual thing and a lot of these contracts do come in every year if you do well at the gig. You know, where do you... So... A lot of us are used to dealing with artists, crazy ideas and crazy things. And most of the time we can work those out when you're on a corporate where there's a crazy idea and they're not used to dealing with the kind of show mentality that we are. How do you answer a client and how do you provide for a client differently than you would a rock and roll show? That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I have one a day. That was my one. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's <laughs> pizza. It'd be two different scenarios, right? So it'd be like, so if you're in the moment, you're at the gig and someone says something, it's typically clients always right. And you kind of say yes. And a lot of it depends, right? If, if we're four days out from rehearsal and we're doing this big build, you have time to have a conversation. Like, okay, well, here's why I want to do this. Or, and, you know, and you can maybe kind of show them the science. And a lot of the times you would have a, a relationship with that person to go there. If it's a quick one-off day thing and the client just says it, you do it, you suck it up and you just make the best of it. And then if the results weren't as good afterwards, um, you can maybe go back to them afterwards and say, Hey, you know, here's how we can maybe improve. You know, we always do like post post cons with a client. Um, I've done multiple drawings um, and representations of like, and tried to show clients the science of like, Hey, if I can literally just spend a few more dollars here and put a genie in or fly one stick of trust or something and flown, how much more consistent I get this coverage across, across the, the space. Um, that's not something you're going to have a conversation with someone on the fly as you're, you know, you know, right before, you know, uh, rehearsals, but in a post-con situation, you're building a relationship. Hey, we can make this better for you for this amount of impact. Here's, here's the greater good. And sometimes we'll even give that upgrade to them for free because, you know, we trust that, Hey, once they experience this, they'll believe it. So that's, that's one, I don't know if that helps a little bit, but, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's I mean, that's great advice. I would also say if you're the, if you're the A1 on site, you're the freelancer who has to deal with that last minute change. Let the provider know, because like you said, Kyle, oftentimes they do these events every year. They take that file out. Sometimes they literally will load up the same console file. Right. And and off you go. And so let them know of that change. So that can be updated in the record. And so when they go to do it next year, you don't have to fight the same battle again about we're going to move our stuff around. Um uh, you know, I, I guess, Jim, I'd love to hear your thoughts on these kind of, you know, when do you say, uh, so as an example, there's a, 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 a government uh, entity office near here. They do accounting and stuff for the military. It's it's in my hometown. And a couple times a year, we get to go in and do just a speech reinforcement um, type of thing. And it's literally in an airplane hangar. So acoustically, it's about as bad as you can get, you know, and they said, well, we had, we, you know, it's not, a, it's not, a, they said, what they said is we can't hear. And that ends up not being a loud problem. It's an intelligibility problem because you're just spraying, you know? Um, and so we, but at the same time, it's like, well, we're very resistant to changing things. So on the one hand, it's like, you know, you're asking me to make improvements, but on the other hand, you're telling me you don't want to change anything. So that, you know, navigating that, what we did is over the over the course of a couple events, we said, all right, we're going to add a pair of delay speakers halfway down the aisle. And that's the only change we made. And and so we kind of, we just, we incrementally made changes so that they were not nervous about 
coming in and completely redesigning this whole thing that they've been doing it forever. And after three or four of them, we ended up in a place where they're like, wow, I can really hear better now and, and the coverage is more even. And so we didn't have to be disruptive about it. So I guess, Jim, I'd like to hear your thoughts on when do you just say, yep, we'll make that work. And, and I mean, I'm sure there are some things that people want that are, you're like, that will really cause some really bad consequences if we do that. So where's that line and how do you navigate that? Cause that's, that's always a difficulty. Well, that's a great question and it does come up all the time. <clears throat> and I think, uh, I think it's important, uh, to have a great attitude, you know, the first day, the first hour of load in and, and be positive and, uh, assure the you know assure the uh, the td and the producers of the show when when you get introduced and stuff that uh you know um things are going to be good we're here to take care of you you know just a lot of good happy thoughts and uh earn enough trust so that when someone says to you you know uh we really we can't we can't have those speakers there we have to move them behind the uh the ferns or the uh you know the 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 this piece of scenic that that we have and and if you say at that point, well, look, I, I just got to let you know that it's not going to be the best thing for audio if we do that. I, I'll do that for you if you want, but um, it's going to be more clear and everyone's going to hear the presenter much better if there's nothing in front of the speakers. And if, you, if you've got a good rapport built already, you, you can say those things. But in the end, it's, it's going to come down to what they want. And sometimes what they want is not the best thing. Um, my friend Billy Walsh has the best line. He, he was on a conference call and they kept talking about having to move the speakers further out and further out and further out. And he, and he just interjects on the conference call and says, as, as your audio person for the show, I just have to uh, let you know that um, we're going to have to have the speakers in the same room as the event for this to work. So, <laughs> <laughs> But everyone knows Billy uh, does, a, does an amazing job as the engineer, but also has great client uh, uh, you know, uh, interaction. So, um, you know, I like the worst thing you can ever do when someone comes up the first time to ask you something and you just go, you know, or something like that. That's, you're not going to get things done that way. You know, you have to, you have to be willing to change. Um, but, but I do, uh, try to just lean on integrity a little bit and say, I don't think this is the best idea, but, um, we can try it. And if, if we lose clarity, maybe we can move this thing from in front of my speakers or, or something like that. Jim, the, uh, I think about the plant, so many people putting plants and stuff in front of front fills. I see that way too yeah. often. <laughs> yeah. I always say, put the plants in front of the video screen. Let's see how that works. <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not going to work. Jim, I'm curious how much um, you have to, so between rock and roll and corporate, how much you have to be focused on records. Right. So I think in rock and roll, I mean, maybe nowadays people care more about it, but you know, rock and roll, it's, it's all about what's happening right here in the moment. Uh, and your left, right, your, your, your two track is your two track. Yeah. You know, it might be get used for something else in corporate nine times out of 10, what you're sending to records is getting printed, getting published back on that company's websites, being archived, all of this stuff. Um, and so some of the simple things in that, that I have to think about often are, I don't royalties. Uh, no, well, yeah. yeah, no, 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 no. no that's a, that's a thing though. Yeah. For real. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, royalty free music. Not, but so for me, um, I was thinking more of the Avenue of like not mute mixing, 
Um, in other words, um, when someone comes on and off a stage or a panel, you don't just mute one group and then open up the next because your your uh, the background noise is going to you know fluctuate like that or go dead silent. Um, uh, you know, tricks that you do with a Dugan um, that like if you had everyone on the Dugan um, and everyone goes quiet, the whole life is going to get sucked out of the air in the recording. And you don't hear it in the room. Sounds great in the room, but in the recording, that life gets sucked out. Um, ha- have you had to evolve and think about some of those little details and nuances that you don't know here in the room, but hit records and matter? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's always nice to to be able to blend in a little bit of, of a room ambient mic just to pick up some applause. And especially, like you said, those, those transitions between, you know, one presenter leaving and someone else coming up or coming in and out of a video. Um, you know, if, if uh, all the lobs go dead and you're playing a nice dry video, that's the way it sounds in the records. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a big roar as the person uh, person's love gets turned back up. So, <clears throat> yeah, definitely uh, learn to ease things in and out as people uh, cross fade on stage. You know, one person's leaving, one per- person's coming. And then just like, like we mentioned earlier, the routing of things for records. One of my first shows uh, ever uh, that was a really big event for me in my corporate world um i still was uh, a little bit of a rock and roll gain structure guy so i um you know i would get a nice big uh, you know just whatever whatever my console mix was like but all the level from the mix came from the amplifiers basically um and I would run my console at a nice, safe place. Well, my first, one of my first big corporates, I'm, I've got like nothing going to the records. Everything is, you know, and, and I got all my amps spun all the way up, and the whole PA is hissing. And and uh, you know, I I was, I was instructed of some better ways to do that. And I so I definitely, <laughs> I definitely learned a, a few things about you know sending good good solid level to the record mixes, and then dialing back the output of the PA to uh, get your console running at the right level. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk about Michael's question in the chat. Uh, and it was just because I was on my list to ask you about today, Jim, you have an article uh, about your method that you call 360 degree system tuning. And it's written in the context of a large format, you know, rock PA. Um, but it's, it has a lot of applicability, I think in a, in a corporate environment too, where you have all these little fills and zones. So for, for the people who, here who aren't familiar with that method, can you just briefly explain what it is? I think that'd be a cool place to start. Cool. Yeah. So uh, the main uh, precept is that, um, you know, a speaker box is as good as they are these days. There's still a lot that comes off the back of them. So, um, uh, you know, there's, there's new speaker products that are working on uh, getting rid of that stuff that goes backwards. And there's certainly a lot we can do with cardioid subs and things like that. Um, uh, cardioid sub arrays. Um, but, um, the, the basic premise is, uh, get, get your main PA, your main left and right speaker, uh, uh, feed to be as full range and as, um, as sonically balanced as you need it to be. And then as you add more zones in like front fill, side fill, outfill, um, uh, delays, all these other uh, groups of speakers that get added in, uh, tailor them in the low end area so that uh, as you add the clarity to those regions that need it, you're not also adding mud and low end buildup. And uh, especially with front fills, uh, one of the things that I've really learned to do over the years is 
to uh, go up on stage and um, during my uh, walk around with song the song playing and uh, listen what's going on up on stage and then um, sometimes I'll pull some frequencies out of the main left and right uh, um, to make it a little more pleasant up there um, and then uh, turn the front fills on and off and see how much uh, low mid low end content is being added from those and tailor that so that things like acoustic guitars or an acoustic piano on stage um, is uh, going to be clean it's not going to be dangerous on the feedback side of things but also just clarity on stage so if you think about being down in the second row in front of a front fill right um i'd never i'd never do it so (laughs) you know when when i'm going to a line in front we're not going to we're not going to go down this rabbit hole but i know there are a couple questions in in the chat about this so when i'm going to go okay let's let's eq our front fill let's set the level let's set the time let's let's do the front fill part of this alignment the first thing I do is I go down in that area and I measure in the coverage area of the front fill, but with the front fill muted. And I want to see what, what the mains are doing here. And I'll give you a hint. You know, you don't need the 100 hertz from that front fill. The mains got that covered. And so what you are going to see is you're going to be missing top end. And that is what the front fill, you know, it's called a fill, right? So let's use the fill to just restore the stuff that we need to get the combined response back to target. And when you do that, you're stripping all that extra low frequency out of your front fills that you don't need. It cleans up the stage. And so, you know, you're, you're applying that to, I think in your article, you talk about, you know, you're doing your side hangs, same idea. We're going to measure the side hang position, but we're going to measure with the mains on instead and just see what, see what we need to to restore. Um, And so if you take that approach, what you end up with is just a lot more control and you don't have all this low frequency energy from 12 different sources splashing around the room and incorporate when we're often fighting for every single DB of game before feedback that we can get. Um, you have omnidirectional labs on people who often don't put them in great locations, right? I mean, that, that, that's the reality of this work. Um, that stuff is really helpful. So I don't, I don't want to turn the conversation towards system design and tuning too much, but I do want to make sure yeah, that we, yes, you do. No, no, I, I don't, but, but I do want to make sure that we're, we're clear that, you know, the PA and what you do with the PA and how you tune the PA, that is a major variable in how easy it is to pull up a, a lav mic and have it behave itself. Like that, you know, you can't ignore that. We have to think about that stuff. So, um, well, and I've, I've shown people this too. Like, and once, once I first, uh, when I finally learned like how to use smart well and stuff and you, and you, and you can tune a system well, you know, uh, it's funny how little EQ end up actually putting on a lav or a podium mic because it's like you, you you didn't realize before how much all you're really doing is you weren't treating the mic like the mics inherently by themselves. If you listen to the mic, the mic sounds fine. There's no reason to EQ half the crap you got a mic. You're EQing what's in the room. So if you can, tr- I know we're not treating the room. I, I take this in context. <laughs> You know, please. Uh, but, you know, if you can get rid of a bunch of that junk first, really, you know, we're talking high-patch filter, two, yeah. two little knocks on, on a lav. And if you're doing more than three filters on a lav, you probably have a system issue, not a microphone issue. Right. You know, um, I want to answer Thomas's question. Um, can you talk about having to uh, mix while also having comms for corporate? Uh, it's less common in rock and roll. Any tips on being able to do uh, both at the same time? Andrew Stokely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think one of the um, more recent, uh, in the last couple of years, the ways to make this better or easier is 
um, four wire com, right? So if you have um, if you have either like FreeSpeak or HelixNet or Readle or something like that, what I've come accustomed to is I'll send my QBus back into an input on my Compaq um, so that I can keep one one you know like one earmuff on. I can hear the room. Um, and I can, what the cool thing about that is I can constantly hear calm, um, and I can choose to listen to my record bus. I can solo things up and then I'm not fighting having to put comms on, take my headphones on and off, put calm headset back on. Um, and, uh, so, and then depending on the type of show, I'll have a conversation typically, like say if my, my, my show caller is right next to me. Um, if I have the script on lock and I, and I can kind of feel it. I'd be like, hey, I'm taking my cans off for this because I, I really got to focus right here. Just let me know if you need me. Uh, or there's other times where if it's just a longer show, I, you know, having that um, having the audio fed back in your calm ear, I think, is the easiest way to combat that. And nowadays, it's mostly Justin Bieber being fed back in, so you really don't have to listen to anything. Um, the the calm thing is a, a great question. <laughs> Sorry, we've been on a Bieber kick lately on the on the no, show. We have yeah, Bieber so apologies for the continued. Uh, Bieber fever. Um, the the comp thing is interesting because, um, like you said, if these are like one-off corporate events, it's super important to listen to them. And sometimes you almost have to muscle memory yourself into what's going on the deck and really pay attention to comps. So, um, you said you use a cue box as well. So no, I. I send my cue bus um, into my comms so that I can choose to either just listen to records. I can solo things up without having to take headphones on and off and wear a comm headset. So for, for years you'd fight having a comm headset, you know, pick up one earmuff, li- listen to something, solo something up. Now I just write my, my, um, my cops. And if you get really fancy with four wire, how do you talk back to the producer or whoever's calling if they call for you? No, no, it's you, in, my, in my comms. Like I oh, have a comm headset. I can you got fancy stuff. What about so, us who don't have well, fancy stuff? So even if you're using like the standard, like the Telex Clearcom stuff, most yeah. of those have a program input, even yeah. the older systems. So you can take a monosum board mix program, run it into there. So you, when you're wearing your comms headset, you can at least hear what's happening in, in the program. So that that you know that can be really helpful. Because um, those have great response, and I want a mono feed it's, to my it's head. A, it's basically like a one octave at one k, uh, right yeah, in the forehead. But, I'd yeah. rather not. Like the com is way more important <laughs> than the show. Than you know, than the show at that point. Like, yeah, if you miss a call or whatever, right. like, right. no way. I can, I couldn't. I could not. I couldn't do it. Well, that, and, and this is this is this might sound like a silly tip, but if you do a lot of this work where you're on comm for eight hours a day, buy yourself a comfortable comm headset that you like, because I am absolutely miserable after a long day wearing a headset that's just you know I wear glasses so it's squishing my you got a headache. I mean that just it, it just makes you miserable. So if you do that a lot for your work, a couple hundred dollar investment is is for your personal comfort level is, is something to consider. Um, yeah, definitely that for sure. Holy cow. Get the cauliflower ear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this question from Pete. Chris. Okay, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, he's, question off because I'm I'm very intrigued about this. We've talked about this other places, but this is yeah. Uh, so I mean, this is something that's on everybody's mind right now, right? So we're moving back to live events. Um, are we going to be still doing virtual slide? Are we still going to be streaming it? You know, if there's no dedicated broadcast engineer, um, what do we do about having to deal with both of that? And that's something that that I think is a really important question because. 
you're right, Pete. This this stuff's not going away. Like the church, the churches that are now set up to stream, they're not going to stop streaming just when they open their door. I think a lot of that's going to continue. Um, so I think it's it's really something that you need to start thinking about when you, this is you know sort of like networked audio has now become part of our jobs that we have to just know how to do Dante. Like you know you can't we can't plead ignorance of this anymore. It's, it's just our skill set has expanded to include this. And I think some basic streaming stuff is, is the same thing. Um, it's really funny. The, the, yeah. Uh, ambient mics that are mixed into a matrix uh, is, is a really quick and easy way to do that. I know Chris Mitchell mixes Unfreeze McGee. He just takes a board mix with some audience mics and he makes them together. And then you get a really good sounding uh, stream record mix. Um, Jim and I have done, a number of articles and talked for hours about this idea of your PA tuning response curve and how that affects your board mix. And it doesn't matter if it's just going out the PA, but as soon as you send that mix to other places to a record bus or to a stream bus or something like this, if you're using the the tonal tilt of your PA to contribute to the tonal sound of your mix, meaning you're using that as part of the way that your mix is sounding totally balanced when you route that signal out of the console to other destinations, your mix is not totally balanced. And so the one trend that I've seen pretty much universally when people start to stream from their front of house console is their PA tilt starts to flatten out. And so what happens is the mix that is leaving the desk sounds correct, sounds however that they want it to sound. And that way you can stream it. You can go to tape, you can go to YouTube. You, and, and so getting the tonal response of the system out of the picture so it's not changing the tone of your mix leaves you with a signal that is a lot easier to stream and do other places and have it sound correct. And um, Jim and I have have both uh, spent a lot of time kind of tweaking this and, 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 and mixing through different iterations of it. And, and so, Jim, do you have any comments on that? Uh, uh, you're correct, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, and it's it's uh, it has become a thing that that I have uh, slowly worked towards. Um, where, especially if I get to do a week or two of rehearsals with a band, um, I'll just uh, I'll just work really really hard on making my board mix sound like an album. And then when I get out there uh, into rehearsals and I have a PA in front of me, I I make the uh, PA act as close to a pair of near fields as I can. And then my mix sounds good in the PA without the PA having to have this huge jacked up low end. Um, and as, uh, you know, if you've read any of our things, uh, our articles and stuff, um, you know, you often have to carry, uh, some kind of outboard processing or be really quick at EQing your matrixes on your console. But, uh, if you go to a festival where the PA has plus 18 dB of, of uh, 60 or 80 hertz, you better be quick, <laughs> quick to <laughs> EQ that stuff out. If you're, you know, not getting a real sound check through the PA and you're, you know, because your, your console is already going to sound big and powerful. And now you're putting it through a PA that has a whole bunch of extended uh, low frequency energy. So you just, you have to know that, if you're in control of your world, you're on tour, you got the same PA every day, uh, it makes it much easier. Um, but if you uh, if you do a lot of one-offs and a lot of things where you don't have a lot of prep time, sometimes you just have to say uncle and, and let the PAs be the way they are. Because most of them sound similar, and 
most of them have a bunch of low end in them uh, in the stock presets now. And, I, and, and I'll relate that back to what you said before, Chris, which is besides the idea of having my board mix come out like I wanted it to, which was a big benefit, when I started working towards a flatter tonal response curve, which is funny because that's kind of where I started things. And then talking to Jim, he was doing the tilted thing at the time. So I started trying that and I kind of bailed out of that, went back to the flat thing because the tilted thing, what I noticed is I'm cutting out, I'm doing all this low shelf on my vocal mic. I'm taking out hundred Hertz, 200 Hertz. I'm high passing. If your PA has all that extra tilt in it, then you go and you take that out of all your inputs just to get them back to being like, you know, kind of the neutral tone that we want. Whereas if you start just get it out of the PA to begin with, what I noticed is I wasn't, I could go through my console and I wasn't just scooping out all the low end from all the channels so aggressively. So, you know, it, it also meant, cause I do a lot of one-off stuff that there's a big difference between having to put one filter on a, on an input and three, when that comes up and you're trying to throw a mix together in real time, I was able to work faster and get better results quicker because I wasn't having to go and sort of fight my own PA tuning through my input EQ, which is just a not, a, it's not a good place to be, you know? Yeah. So from a corporate side to that whole broadcast feel and audience mics, you know, that's something where I feel like in rock and roll, you could find a level of audience mics. You're just going to leave there. Um, and because you're just, it's sorry, it's more of an ambient thing. It's just going to be constant in corporate, I'm almost going to guarantee you're not going to want that constant because uh, that that room noise is just you, it, that doesn't engage you as an experience. It's just going to be noise, exactly what it sounds like. But if you're in a, in a gala, an award show, or something like that, and you want to hear the clapping come and going, you're going to want to ride that. Um, but be mindful of keeping some type of consistent floor again. Back to that whole like it doesn't suck out to nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've done a couple things where you can like um, side chain uh, uh, like some, some DCAs and things like that to kind of ride that stuff. And uh, it's it's not easy as a person who's focusing on the room to also be conscientious to ride a DCA or or whatever for that for um, for for the audience. But it's to me, actually, when I first read this question, this is where I thought it was going, but um, it didn't. Are clients going to be willing to pay? I mean, it's really what it boils down to. Are people going to be willing to pay for a broadcast engineer? I mean, that's the crux of this of like, you know, if we're doing this right. And I think it's that's I, that's what I'm very curious to see on how much does someone value what someone views on the other end and the attention and detail it takes to get there. Or on my side, as a hiring side, what do I have to keep in mind? What type of A1 do I have to hire to do this show? Do I have to find someone who can mix a broadcast mix, mix in audience mics, do all that right and well? Um, should I have to pay them more for that, or just find you know, I just all these like different uh, little nuances to this that um, are interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, because it it is um, some can do it well. I believe I I don't uh, <clears throat> I haven't done enough corporate uh, in the last couple of years to. Uh, have been put in the position where I often have to uh, ride audience levels up and down and yeah, for the records. Um, but yeah, if, if you can, if you can make a room sound fantastic, uh, lavalier sound great, video rolls are powerful. Everything's happening on cue. You're never late. You're always on time with your cues and all of that and mix an amazing broadcast mix. I think you're worth some more money. Um, but if you're a, if you're on the client end and the records are everything from this show, then then I think it's uh, it's worth it to make sure somebody's paying attention to only that. 
Well, I think it's Chris, you, I mean, you're talking about what's the client's priorities here, right? Um, just like a band will say, when is it in our, you know, a smaller band, when is it, when is their monitor mix important enough to justify hiring an engineer to do monitors versus doing it in front of, you know, how much attention, what percentage of somebody's bandwidth does that require? Right. Um, so I think it's, I think it's another iteration of the same thing. I'd like to ask everybody when, you know, I mean, I know that I, I was doing music before I was doing corporate. So going into corporate events was a newer adjustment for me. Um, based on, based on what I know about your career, Jim, I would say that's probably similar for you that you were doing music before you're doing corporate. Um, so what was the biggest, maybe biggest adjustment when you, when you started doing corporate versus having the, your, your live music context, or maybe what was the, the thing that surprised you or the thing that you didn't expect that was so different? Yeah. Uh, well definitely the, re- uh, mixing for strong record levels, as I mentioned earlier, that was, um, something I had to, uh, you know, it was a quick shift because uh, I, I get gain structure, but I just didn't think much about it in the beginning uh, in in corporate uh, to, to to always be sending good, strong, consistent levels and balancing, uh, you know, a, a powerful opening video to that first lavalier mic that steps on stage and making sure that transitions well onto the records, um, things like that. Um, mixing with a headset, as we've talked about today, definitely a huge, uh, adjustment. Um, and especially if you're tucked in a corner somewhere and the only speaker is out of my left ear, you know, I'm, I'm keying off that. And then the show is eight days long, that left ear <laughs> or the right ear has the calm on it all the time. And, you know, so it's nice if you're in the middle and you can at least switch your, your headset from ear to ear a couple times a day and, and give it a rest. But, uh, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, and, and my PA tuning, as we mentioned earlier, um, I have slowly morphed in my rock and roll world to tuning a more flat PA. Um, but uh, I, I didn't pay all that much attention to it in the, in the early years. I, I would just make the console do what I needed to do. But in corporate, where I have subs on an AUGS, because I only want certain things to go to the subs. I certainly don't want my lavaliers to go to the subs. Um, uh, so mixing subs off an AUGS was a transition as well that uh, is a whole other can of worms. And I think, you know, the other thing that, that might not be, and I want I do want to hear from Kyle on this. <laughs> Stop scrolling Facebook, Kyle. But for, for me, the, the, um, the uh, you know, there are so, on a larger corporate thing, so many fill zones and delay zones and just, you know, these people, you know, this one little eight inch box on a stand, like that's their whole world for the next three days. Like I need to really pay attention to listening in all those zones and understanding what their experience is going to be like as a listener. I need to have that all in my head when I'm mixing. Um, you know, it's, it's a different mindset, I think, than a typical music concert where you're like, yeah, we're all kind of standing here and the PA's playing at us. Like corporate, you have different boxes all over the room and, and, you know, tons of, so I, you really want to be mindful of the fact that your signal's going so many places and you'll find that you're, you're more conscious when you're like, let me set the level of this lab. You know, you, you make these subtle adjustments just with the context of how that's behaving in the space. I think that would be something I would say. Kyle, turn side. 
Um, so the the thing that I would add to that is um, I think as A1 on a corporate show, you have a little bit more leniency, like I said at the beginning, and go sit in the seats, move, move around things, listen everywhere, realize where people are going to be gathering. Um, and, and, and like Jim said, being stuck in a corner, I mean, how many corporate clients go, oh, yeah, sure, you can be right in the middle of everything. That'd be great. Can you wear a pink shirt? That would be awesome. Um, That's one thing that we never really talked about on this thing yet is they don't want to see you. They don't Mm want to hear you. They don't want to see your gear. They, it's a thing. And for coming from rock and roll, like, you know, a few pieces of gaff tape and kicking something underneath the road case will work. But that stuff just does not work in corporate world. I mean, I, I did a bunch of stuff in Vegas while I was there because it was so easy to pick up and do, like from from Mandalay Bay Event Center to, you know, little breakout rooms in the Paris casino or whatever. So it was completely different. But um, the one thing that I noticed that the rock and roll guys who went in and did the corporate stuff in their, their free time as freelancers opposed to those who worked for AV companies that were corporate dudes all the time is we the, the rock and roll folks thought ahead a lot. There was a lot of forward thinking before somebody was in that room. It seemed like the AV companies were fixing problems as they happened and not forward thinking. I mean, I, I can't speak for all of them, but I did a ton in Vegas and it just seemed like Hey man, this is like you got to think. You got to think. If the bar is back there, they're gonna want to hear there because this is not something that they want to sing along with. This is something that they want to drink and get to tomorrow. Like, <laughs> so you got to think about that stuff. I mean, yeah. uh, in getting people back into the breakout rooms after breaks. Like you got to think about that as well. Do you have some kind of thing set up where they're going to have catering going on? Um, Do you have communication to someone down there? I mean, there's a lot of forward thinking that goes into these events. And sometimes you are kind of, you get, you get the corporate audio package. You know what I mean? It, someone didn't plan out the whole thing and you're getting asked for crazy stuff. Like I think one of the cooler ones I did, I did a, um, a semi truck trucking company, but their special guest was Ruben stuttered and Kenny G. So what a combination. Holy cow. That's a confusing show right there. (laughs) So I had all day of talking heads with bad laugh placements with hiding my speakers you know, taping down everything and anything that I could hide. And then I basically had a concert at the end. And it was almost like I prepared so much for the conference that the rock and roll part at the end was easy breezy. It was like, oh, Kenny G, whatever, you know, play out of the side of your mouth. I got your thing plugged in. <laughs> We've all done a Kenny G show or most. Okay. Maybe not all of us, but it's pretty. You he, may, he, I think you might be the only one who has done a Kenny G. Chris, have you done a Kenny G show? Yeah. Okay. It's 50 50 then. So he brings this lexicon uh, reverb unit and you plug his sax mic into it and then directly out of it into your desk. I mean, that was the only request I had from Kenny G. And then Ruben Stutter, like he had just won whatever that idol idol at the time. So the dude was wicked. Like I had no problem with that. But the client was like so worried about those two 
the pr- preparation that I did for the corporate show was the hardest. And yeah. the rock show was just like the icing on the cake. And then they get that. Now that that semi company comes back to the same place every year. And I was just a freelance guy. So hopefully they get to continue. But um, I, I kind of like both. It, it's a challenge for both. But you do have to forward think a lot when it comes to setting up your room. Whether you have six hours before your conference starts or you have a week of rehearsals. Like you have to forward think. Yeah. Well, I, I want to point. Uh, I'll just say super quick with with uh, uh, corporate in the day and uh, music at night. Oftentimes, you have to really uh, adjust your gain structure on your PA. Um, yeah, you know, like I was saying, my <coughs> my rock and roll gain structure is meant for that, but it's not so good for uh, certain things in in corporate and corporate gain structure with the amps all backed off and stuff. So you get you know uh, that doesn't work for music so sorry mike i i want to uh i want to kind of no it's fine jim thank you i want to i want to kind of piggyback on what kyle said you okay buddy you need some water yeah Um, all right this this idea that um (laughs) what he said is like all they're they're just worried about you know the organizers are just you know they they kind of hover right they're they just they're just nervous. They want everything to go right. And, and, you know, I, I, I know I've told the story before, but there was a corporate gig that I got called to do where, uh, the person who had done it, the, it's a yearly thing. And the person who had done it the year before did a really terrible job and was not asked back. Um, and so, you know, when that thing kicked off, they were like helicopters by my mix position. And, and so, you know, Five minutes into it, as soon as they realized, okay, this is not going down in flames, it's fine. They all kind of went off and went to worry about other things. And so, like, that was one of the first things you said, Jim, about, like, you know, that's not a situation where it's like, let me talk to you about audio engineering technical stuff. That has nothing to do with it. They don't understand it. They don't want to talk about that. They just want to feel confident that the event is going to not have a problem, that it's just going to be successful and it's going to go off without, you know, and, and basically they want to have confidence in me that I'm going to handle it. And, and so that took five minutes and then they went off and did something else. So I think that goes back to creating that rapport and having that good professionalism when you show up. And I, I know we're, we're kind of getting down to the end of our time. I want to also touch on what Michael said in the chat, the aesthetics idea. Um, I think this is something that I've been happy to watch these small format consoles get super powerful. Um, because I like the idea that, uh, you know, there was a corporate thing. Our mayor just said she was going to, she was announcing for, she was going to run again and a little tiny art gallery. Everyone's kind of like packed, you know, packed in there. And all I got was an Alesis analog thing, like Yate size of a DVD case, you know, and uh, you have a high and a low shelf EQ and I have a lab and I'm like, this is yikes, you know? And so um, that is why I looked at something like the SQ five here, um, you, you know, in a situation like that, I absolutely can't roll in even something like, uh, you know, an X32, which might be considered small in the grand scheme of things. I can't be rolling that thing in there. Um, a console that goes in a tiny little footprint like that, and I can just drop on the on the counter and has good local I.O., but still has the, the advanced tool set where I have EQs. And, you know, that was something that made my life a lot easier where I said, no, no, I don't, I'm not asking you to kill off four seats for me. I can work with this available space, but you know, I can get more power and more functionality into, into that footprint. And my capability goes up. And when I have stuff like labs and little rooms, 
I'm more able to deal with that and get good results. So, you know, I, I know we kind of talked about technology choice, but these little tiny digital consoles are, are to me a big step forward. And when we are talking about these very unideal situations and lousy mix positions and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you had mentioned uh, before, uh, you know, what were some of the challenges or differences that come from rock and roll into, into corporate. For me, one of the biggest things was learning how to listen to calm on very cue intensive shows and being able to ride those cues. Um, you know, it's uh, so-and-so introducing so-and-so, and then you hit the stinger, go into roll in a video roll. And so you're, you're tracking and, um, you know, a good show caller is going to say, you know, you don't go and you you are, you don't do this thing until I say the geo, right? The, like the go is the big word. And mo- a good show caller will say, look, if I never said go, it's not your fault that you didn't hit the queue. It's my fault. Right. Um, and Jim probably knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and that it's always, is, it's always my fault. Well, but it, it's difficult, right? Because you're trained to anticipate things happening. Sure. And so like, if you're watching, you see, like they said, and the word goes to so-and-so your instinct is to go for that. But until they said go, you can't. And there's been times where you got a little, you know, hand slapped of like, no, no, no I didn't say go, you know, right. and those typically happen in rehearsals where like you're, you're antsy, you're anticipating. Um, uh, so it's a combination of being able to read a, uh, read a show flow, watch it, watch what's happening you know, hit go on QLab or Playback Pro or whatever things you're using, all like all of those things. Um, that's not something you typically have to do in, in rock and roll. It's, right. you know, you get this. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, it can't, Chris. You know, I mean, you can't have every tech just doing their own cues. Like it, it that has to be how it is, where let the let the producer or the stage manager, whoever's calling your cues, let them deal with not calling the cue, right? Because I'm not pressing go until you tell me to go, and then I'm going to fire that scene or move that fade or whatever. That's their whole job. They need to have that ability to make that call. And they are often aware of problems or things or changes that I don't know about. You know, they, they might be backstage and, and, and have other people near them and, and talking to talent and whatever. So I, I don't have the context that that person does who's calling the show. So like you said, if I'm ever in doubt, you know, no, I'm going to defer to what that person's telling me. Absolutely. Now I, I will say that I, <clears throat> I have covered a missed go many times when <laughs> I know they meant to play that stinger there. Cause that person was clearly introduced. And there's, <laughs> been, there's been a second and a half of nothing and I'm playing that stinger. And um, so and I've I've had I have had show callers who have said four times in the course of you know a week, oh, thanks for covering me. And then on that last time when you cover them and they didn't want you to go, it's still your fault. So uh, it, it's a tough one to win every time. And and you won't you won't win it every time. You're gonna there're gonna be some gaffes and there're gonna be some blowing cues and you know that that's the nature of it I think. But it, one of the first things we said, which is use your judgment. Like if it's, it's, if it's the obvious mistake, then, then make it happen. So, I mean, I've uh, started a Peter Frampton show with the whole PA uh, uh, <laughs> muted for a, a good five seconds. And I had one cue, one cue. That was it. The whole show. Just turn it on. Chris Raybould said, uh, he said the very first time he was, he's like, yeah, you know, I was, I was just getting into console automation. He said the first time I fired a snapshot during a show, I muted the whole PA. <laughs> <laughs> So, probably, if anyone has one more question, we'd probably have time for another question. Yeah, we got one or two more minutes here just to wrap it up. 
the uh, is a turnover there. But um, I appreciate you all for hanging out. If you didn't know who we were already, Singleton Noise Podcast. You can check us out on any podcast player, purse on web. You know, you'll, you'll find us. If you some names are common here, I know Joel. We have a website, Chris. Huh? We have a website now. Oh yeah, singletonnoisepodcast.com. Um, but uh, I, I know, I know Michael knows Michael Fraley knows who we are. James Burke, you know, recognize the name. Joel Wonky. Yeah, uh, Andy Lipnick, I know that name. Hello, Andy. Good to see you. The common names in here. So I appreciate you all for returning. Uh, and uh, come back tomorrow. Uh, Michael SPL Lawrence will be talking about <laughs> SPL. And, uh, and we have Jimmy Anderson joining us tomorrow. So. Yeah. Ah, nice. Yep. Jim, well, thank you for, for joining us and lending oh. your, your knowledge and expertise. It's always great to have you, man. It's always a treat. You bet. I, uh, I see Chris, I see, uh, Chris Leonard, Michael Lawrence, and I am Kyle Chernside. And this has been... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to cover his outro for him. Yes. Oh, no, thanks so much for having me guys. I, I, I will say very quickly that, um, yeah, I, I've been mixing live music for 40 years and, and corporate for half that time. And that transition time, uh, 20 years ago when I first started doing corporate was, was very interesting. And, and I learned a lot and there is a ton to know, but if you can do both things, um, you, you will find work unless there's a pandemic and then yes. you won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Jim, for joining us. And thank you everybody for, for stopping by and, and uh, partaking in our discussion. And we appreciate the comments and the questions. And we hope to see you back here tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. We're going to talk about uh, some mixing. So uh, thanks everybody. Take care. Y'all tomorrow, not mixing. Yeah, mixing, mixing, SPL mixing. Yeah. It's really, oh, yeah. yeah. Don't worry. It's it's all under control. It's going to be a good time. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys.